Well, many years ago, a friend of mine gave me two tickets to a gopher basketball game, and I had no idea where the seats were. Um, I figured they would probably be in the nosebleeds or behind a pillar at the barn. And so I was surprised when I showed up and was led to seats right at center court, just about four rows up from the court. And uh, I was even more surprised when someone came down and asked me for my order. And I looked a little puzzled, and the person next to me said, uh, you can order anything. It's, uh, it comes with the seats. So I got free food and a great seats for a basketball game. Now, I am a college basketball fan, but I'm not a gopher fan. I'm sorry, but I am a Jayhawk through and through. So in some ways, um, this was wasted on me. Um, I got more than I expected, more than I deserved, and even more than I appreciated, I think, at the time. I got far more than I bargained for. Now, our story today is not about a basketball fan, but about a man who, got, who had some serious needs. He believed he was in just the place he, was, he needed to be to have those needs met. But what he received was not what he expected, but just what he needed. And so what we'll find out, and I hope we'll discover for ourselves, is that sometimes Jesus has more for us than even we expect. The story's found in Acts chapter 3, and if you'd like to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, you can on page 1659-1659. I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. The words will also be on the screen. So here's how Luke, the storyteller, uh, begins this uh, particular story. He says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. By the way, one of the things Luke is letting us know here is that the earliest Christians, one of the things they did was regularly went to the temple in Jerusalem for public worship. And they were going to an area on the outer wall of the temple, a place called Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Porch. Um, and it was a place where Gentiles as well as Jews could gather. And it's the place that Jesus went when he came to Jerusalem to teach people as well, people who were curious about his message. And while they were there, um, one time he got a little angry at some who were trading and selling animals and doing some things that he didn't like. So he drove those merchants out who were trading there. So if you can just imagine, this is a little bit of a chaotic place. There were lots of, it was a noisy place with commerce and conversation and animals and prayer going on all at the same time. So just take that as the picture for what happens next. It says, there was a man who was lame from birth. Um, was carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Now, there were beggars there, uh, there as well. In addition to the commerce and the noise and the hustle and bustle, they were, many of them were dirty. They were physically disabled. Some may have been mentally ill. A few were probably crooks. And they gathered at the temple gate because, in theory, it was a place that they could run into people who were more generous. Charity for the poor uh, was an important value in Judaism. It would have been strategic for a beggar to find, especially a disabled person, someone who couldn't work, to find a place there where they could perhaps talk to people who were religious and might have pity and give them something to eat. Throughout Christian history, uh, taking care of the poor, the sick, the disabled, orphans, widows, and refugees has been a priority of the church. These ministries of mercy have characterized Christians through the centuries. And the question for us today is, is that still true? And in what ways is it true? And in what ways is it not? I'm just asking the question, but it's something that we periodically ought to ask ourselves. Are we doing enough for those that God has asked us to care for? Well, this man was one of the regulars. Uh, we're told that he was a paraplegic, uh, that he needed friends to be able to bring him here, there each day to beg that he'd been disabled for birth, from birth, which meant that he wasn't able to work uh, and earn a living, and he was totally dependent upon the generosity 
and the goodness of people who came through that gate each day there in the temple. And this one particular day, he's seated on a mat, probably in a strategic place, and he's calling out to everyone who comes through. Luke tells us that he looked up and saw Peter and John. Now, the reason that's significant is because of a story we told a couple of weeks ago when Peter preached a very famous sermon, Sermon on the Day of Pentecost. It was a sermon that electrified everyone, and this man must have been there that day because it says in verse 3, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, so he recognizes them, he asked them for money. Now, what happens next changes everything for him. He didn't expect much, maybe just a few shekels, and if he was lucky, a more generous gift. But he certainly did not expect what came next. So let me just read what Luke tells us. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Really, they couldn't believe what they had seen, and neither could this man. It says he was walking and jumping and praising God. Now, most of us walk every single day, but we don't walk and jump and praise God because we expect to take those steps. But for him, these were the first steps he'd ever taken in his life. He must have made a lot of noise because people began to notice him. And a few, some who maybe recognized him, really had given him very little thought in their lives. He was just one of the mass of beggars who crowded around the gate. But now, they noticed him. Now, there's a temptation for us to read a story like this and think that Peter and John planned this as a publicity stunt to attract attention. That what they did, they did for dramatic effect. But that's not true. This isn't a photo op, like a politician with a photographer in tow going to visit the victims of a hurricane. Um, and if you're unconvinced, just look at the way this interaction with the man starts between Peter and John and the man. Verses 4 and 5. It says, Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention. So do you notice the way that Peter really wants to engage this man, to look him in the eye? Now here's something I'm not proud of. Um, a week ago on Saturday, Kathy and I met a couple that we'd not previously met downtown at a restaurant for brunch. And after we had brunch, uh, we were outside and we were saying goodbye to these people that we had just met, our new friends. When a young woman approached our group and asked us for some money, and she asked me specifically. Now, I, I have talked to homeless experts before who've told us or told me that it's best not to give money to folks like this because really what they need is to be a part of the social service network to be able to have their real needs met. So that plays in my mind. That's one of the reasons that here at City Church we give to organizations like Community Emergency Service and to the Simpson Shelter because those folks are trained and know how to help these meet these needs in better ways. Yet, there are times that I do give, although my giving is erratic. Now, this time when this young woman approached me, um, I'll 
confess that I did give, although my motives weren't pure, because frankly, what I was thinking is these people I had just met, that we just had brunch with, are going to think he's a pastor and he blew her off. So I pulled out my wallet and gave her a dollar. But after reading the story this week from Acts chapter 3, I was humbled, actually humiliated might be a better word, not so much because I was a reluctant giver and not so much because I gave so little, but because I did not look that woman in the eye. I didn't look at her. I simply took a dollar bill out of my pocket and gave it to her, and she was on her way. And Luke tells us that this man, that Peter looked this man in the eye, and he asked the man to look at him. Why? Because he wanted to make a human connection. His concern was this man's welfare, not just his need for some spare change, because he responded with true compassion and met needs this man didn't even ask to have met. But Peter looked him in the eye, he took him by the hand, he helped him up, and for the first time in his life, this man walked. He, this man, was caught totally off guard, probably initially disappointed when Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold, I can't give you anything. But then he ended up getting more than he ever dreamed possible. Now, there's, it's possible. There, the, the legend is that he was probably in his 40s. Uh, we don't really know, but uh, he had perhaps prayed early in his life that he'd be healed. But that prayer had not been answered. It was decades ago. And perhaps now he thought, well, I'll just settle for getting three square meals a day if I can from those who are generous enough to give me some money. But suddenly he's walking. And he realizes there's more to the conversation than Luke conveys here. But there is more because we know that this man then put his faith in Jesus. Having experienced this healing in the name of Jesus, he too experienced not just physical healing, but spiritual healing as well. Healing that transformed his life in the present and for the future. Luke tells us the crowd, again, was filled with wonder and amazement what it, what, with what had happened. But we also know, from what we'll look at next week, that not everyone was impressed. I'm going to skip ahead, and we'll talk more about this next week. But there were some who criticized Peter and John. In chapter 4, verse 9, Peter defends what he's done. He says, We are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed. You notice the way Peter refers to what they've done. It was an act of kindness. That's what people, Peter calls what they did. Even though they did for this man uh, what got everyone's attention, it's not the reason that they healed him. They didn't do this to get on the front page of the Jerusalem Times. What they did was out of compassion for a man who was suffering. I think there are several lessons for us here, and the first is to be careful about our motives. And I'm talking to myself here. When you serve someone, do something for them out of care and concern for their well-being. As a human being, look them in the eye as someone created in the image of God. Don't do what I did just last Saturday and slip a bill and not look the person in the eye. Another lesson is that we should take away is that we should do what we can to meet every need that someone has. This man needed money, but even more, he needed physical healing and spiritual rebirth. So the mental, the physical, the spiritual, all are important. Now, in view of eternity, the spiritual is the most important. But we should never conclude that as Christians, we shouldn't give material or physical help just because the spiritual need might be the greatest of all the needs. If we truly care about others, we'll seek to do what we can within our power to meet the needs of others. This man needed far more than spare change. He needed Jesus and the healing that Jesus could provide for his body and his soul. And we can be a part of doing that in the lives of others. Now, we might also look at this story and say, well, you know, 
what if I were this man? Or in what ways I, am I this man? What need do I have right now? Now, your need may not be for some spare change, but you may need something. Whatever's on your list, there may be something else on your list that you are only vaguely aware of. Now, perhaps what you're thinking about right now when you think of your needs is you've got some financial pressures or you're struggling with an illness or you have a bad boss at work or you're facing a relationship challenge. But you may also be aware of a deep unsettledness inside of you, something that just won't go away, that's pointing to something deeper that you just haven't been giving attention to. Because we're all disabled in one way or another. There's more below the surface because sometimes what we are is crippled spiritually. Asking God to meet our needs is something he invites us to do, but know that when we do, we may get more than we bargained for. God may have more in store for us than we ever expected. So like this poor crippled man, we too may be asking for dimes and quarters rather than a whole new way of life, which is what Jesus wants to give us. Sometimes it is not that we expect too much, but that we expect too little. Our true satisfaction isn't found in dimes and nickels, but in Jesus Christ, and he's what we need. So while we may be looking for satisfaction in a career or a bank account or through recognition or looking for entertainment through an exotic vacation or dreaming of a house or a relationship, what we really need is Jesus. This poor crippled man, the one who asked for some spare change, got more than he really bargained for. And his brother, can you spare a dime, was turned into something much more significant in his life. And his immediate reaction was to do what we all need to do when we receive something from God. He praised God. So what can we learn from this man's story? I think, at least in part, is that our ultimate satisfaction is found in Jesus. Yes, we need money, and yes, we need healing. But in the end, Jesus is our true need. Some of us have been looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. Others of us have been far too easily pleased. Only Jesus can satisfy the longings of our hearts. What Peter and John did didn't just affect this man. It affected many others. Again, I want to read verses 9 and 10. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Wonder and amazement. What a great way to describe what they experienced and their reaction. And then Luke tells us that while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Peter, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, is not one to let an opportunity slip through his fingers to tell others about Jesus. So it says in verse 12, when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Now what Peter says here is, is really important. At the time, many believed that wonder workers, people who could do miracles, were able to do so because of their great piety. So because they were such righteous folks, they had special power. But Peter and John disagree. Surrounded by this amazed crowd, they're essentially saying, it wasn't us, it was Jesus. The real power behind this isn't something that we've done, but what God has done through us. Now let me just acknowledge up front that I know that not all of you are necessarily Christians. In fact, you may be seeking, you may be skeptical about all of this, and one of your skeptical, or one of your skeptical points is miracles. You just can't accept the idea that miracles take place. Many people, at least that I've talked to, assume that people in the ancient world were more gullible, that they would just 
maybe believed miracles were more likely to happen than we do today. Although I don't think that's true. We even have an instance in uh, just after Jesus rose from the dead, one of his disciples, Thomas, did not believe and said, I have to see it for myself before I will believe it. And Jesus gave him that opportunity. But the same is true here. And yet, the people who would be most skeptical are actually the ones who acknowledge that what happened, happened. Again, I want to skip to chapter 4, which we'll look at more next week. But there were some of Jesus, or excuse me, Peter's opponents who ended up accepting what happened as fact because there was no other choice for them. In verses 16 and 17, they are talking among themselves. So this is Peter's opponents. And they say, everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. So these are among the first people who would have denied, if they could, that a miracle took place. They would have been the ones who would have said, you know, wait a second, it didn't happen. But they can't do that, so their only resort in that case is to tell Peter and John to stay quiet. So back to chapter 3. While Peter has their full attention, he begins to speak, and he starts with some bad news. He says, you handed Jesus over to be killed. You also disowned him before Pilate, even though he had decided to let him go. Now, the word disowned here simply means that he refused, or they refused, to acknowledge that Jesus was a prophet. And they persuaded Pilate, despite his misgivings, to have him crucified. And then he adds, and you asked that a murderer be released to you. Now, that's a reference to a time in Jesus' trial when um, Pilate wanted to have him released, uh, Jesus released, and the crowd insisted that he be crucified, and then Pilate instead released a known terrorist named Barabbas to them um, and freed him from prison instead. In other words, what Peter's saying is, you not only condemned an innocent man, you released a guilty one. Crucifixion, according to the Christian understanding, is the greatest crime in human history. And some of those who were listening to Peter that day were there. And they were part of the crowd, part of those who cried out that he be crucified. And yet Peter makes the point that whatever mistakes they've made, they couldn't undermine God's plan. In fact, it was part of his plan. So in verse 15, he says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We're witnesses of this. And then the proof, you see, is that Jesus rose from the dead. Without the resurrection, the Christian church would never have gotten off the ground. The resurrection is the power behind everything that they did. And so here's how Peter describes that power in verse 16. He says, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can see. Now, we don't have the entire conversation, but Luke tells us that this man put his faith in Jesus. So in the part, process of being healed, he also interacted and learned more about Jesus and put his faith in him. But Peter is telling us that it is Jesus, not Peter and John, who healed this man. The secret of life with Jesus is this. It's not what we can do, but what Christ can do in and through us. If we rely solely on our effort, there will be nothing but failure and frustration and fear. But in him we'll experience peace and power. Now, what Peter says next sounds harsh. He puts the blame fully on those who participated in the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. But he is also surprisingly understanding. He says, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. In college, uh, I worked for a man who owned a, 
several build, apartment buildings. Um, and he gave me free rent and paid me a stipend to do a number of different tasks. Um, and uh, it was a good job. Was worked around, I could do the job around the hours that basically I needed to, to work. Um, and, but instead of issuing me a W-2 or paying me by paying the FICA, he issued me a 999. And if that's all confusing to you, it was really confusing to me then. So I would take my tax tax return, my, you know, my uh, 1040 every year, and I would just put in the amount that he put on that 1099 and pay my taxes. Until I turned into my junior year and I got a letter from the IRS informing me that I was under investigation for tax evasion and liable for hundreds of dollars in fines. And I panicked. A friend of mine had a dad who was an accountant. I called him and he said, well, here's the deal. You should have been paying your FICA. I didn't know what FICA was. He said, well, the Social Security and Medicare that you're supposed to pay out of your paycheck. He said, the fact that he hasn't paid it means you have to pay it, and you're just going to have to do it. He said, call the IRS. They'll work it out. They may ask you to pay a fine, but you'll probably get it worked out. And I remember saying to him, why would they fine me for a rule that I didn't know about? He said, I'm sorry, but it doesn't matter. Ignorance is not an excuse. So I did what he suggested. I called the IRS. I worked things out. I didn't have to pay a fine, but I did have to pay those back taxes. Peter, what he's doing here is not letting these folks off the hook. Jesus was innocent, but they were not. He wasn't excusing or implying that forgiveness wasn't necessary, but he was saying that no matter what they had done, that in, including helping put Jesus on the cross, that they are forgivable. Some have the mistaken impression that we need to be worthy of God's forgiveness. But Peter says no one is unforgivable. God's offer of mercy, though, also comes with a warning. They may have acted in ignorance, but ignorance is no excuse for rejecting Jesus. Now, the Jews may not have realized what they were doing, but that did not make them innocent. In fact, they were worse off than they thought. And yet, there is some good news, some very good news. And that's where Peter moves next in verse 19. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So he's just saying, acknowledge your guilt, admit it, and turn to God. To repent means to change your mind. To turn to God means to turn from an old destructive way of life and toward our creator. So if the first half of the message is that we are worse off than we ever thought, the second half of the message is that God loves us more than we ever imagined. If we repent and turn to God, our sins will be wiped out. That word wiped out means to wash off, to erase, to wipe away, to obliterate. One scholar says uh, that uh, this is perhaps an image that many would have been familiar with. Ancient documents were often made out of a material called papyrus. Papyrus was um, paper made from the stems of a water plant. What they would do is they would lace those, kind of weave those into a, a mat they would pound it out to make it flat and let it dry, and then they would write on it. Now, the problem with papyrus was that the ink would dry on the surface, but it didn't soak into the material. So that actually had an advantage. If you were using that piece of papyrus and you wrote something on it and you wanted to write something else, you could just take a wet cloth and wipe it off. That is the image here that, that Peter is giving, that these sins can be wiped away. So we might talk about wiping a whiteboard clean. That's the idea of what's going on here. So not only are our sins wiped out, but he also says there are times of refreshing that comes from the Lord. In other words, rest and relief that comes from the joy of being forgiven. It's the refreshment that comes from God being present with us, being forgiven and having a restored relationship with God. 
This unnamed man who was seated at the temple wanted money, and he needed it. He also needed healing, and he got it. And what he needed even more was spiritual rebirth, to have his sins wiped out and to find refreshment from the Lord. We have been created, the Bible tells us, with an unquenchable need for God. So if you're weighted down by guilt, know that in Jesus you can have your sins wiped away. You can find forgiveness and refreshment, knowing that you were loved and cherished by God more than you ever expected. God's love is freely given. It's not deserved. There's nothing we have done or can do or will do in the future that can earn that love. It comes to us by grace. And no one understood this more than Peter. What makes his sermon so powerful is to think back on his biography. And some of you may know the story of how Jesus, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he denied three times that he even knew him. And the third time, he was in a courtyard just across from where Jesus was undergoing a trial. And when he denied Jesus the third time, Jesus looked across that courtyard into the face of Peter. And Peter understood the full horror of what he had done. But Jesus didn't condemn him. Instead, he loved him more tenderly than before. And in that moment, Peter passed from despair to hope. We receive salvation not by what we've done, but by grace. Our identity is not in who we are, what we do, any talent or skill that we might possess. God does not love us for the good that we do, but loves us for who we are in Christ, forgiven and redeemed. So we may possess nothing, but by God's grace we receive everything. In his eyes we are infinitely loved and cherished. And if we truly think about it, it's unexpected, it's undeserved, and we get more than we ever bargained for. Let's pray. Father, we think of this story and, and think of Peter's courage to speak out, even though there were there those that day, uh, as we'll learn next week, who didn't want him to speak out. But he did so because he had experienced transformation in his own life. He'd experienced forgiveness and grace and love that came through Jesus. And he wanted to tell others about it. This man who was there that day was just simply asking for a little bread, a little bit of change to be able to buy something to eat. But he got far more. He found healing and spiritual rebirth. Father, each one of us come today with needs, needs of all sorts that need to be met. And Father, I pray that you would meet those needs of those who are here. But I pray, Father, even more that the needs that are under the surface in our lives would also rise to the surface and that we would see our need for you to have a relationship with Jesus and that we would then come to find the joy and refreshment and forgiveness that we all need. We pray this in Jesus' name.